when you look across the board and what feels like it could have a strong statement in today's world of, you know, not total realist painting, not total figurative, not naive, somewhere kind of pulling all these various influences together, you know, nods to Hockney in the background. And, you know, there's, there's a lot there that speaks to culture and different ways and different people come to it for different reasons that I think gives it high appeal in today's art world. Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. Live Arts look behind the scenes at how the global art market really works. I'm your host, Marion Maniker. This podcast is brought to you by Live Art, the global art marketplace that puts you in control. Download the Live Art app to get all of the most relevant art market information as well as access to exclusive private sales. Or visit us at liveart.io. It's the end of the first quarter in the art market. That gives us an opportunity to assess the momentum for a number of artists whose work has been selling at auction. The first quarter is traditionally less active than the spring market, so we can focus on some artists who might not draw attention at other times during the year. With that in mind, we've put together a hot list for the first quarter. These are artists with active markets where we see demand. You can read our list on the LiveArt app or at liveart.io. And I've asked LiveArt's Executive Vice President, George O'Dell, to comment on these particular artist markets. I think you'll find it enlightening. George O'Dell, good to have you back. It's been the first quarter of 2022. It's been a bit of a rip-roaring adventure in the art market, and I thought we could go over a few of the artists where we're seeing interesting sort of upward movement. And I think one of the most striking um, sales was uh, Lynn Drexler's uh, million-dollar sale at the uh, Christie's mid-season March uh, post-war uh, and contemporary uh, sale. Do you, do you have some insight to what went on there? Yeah, well, I'd, yeah, I'd love to d- deep dive into all of this. And you know, first and foremost, great to be back in the studio. Or another another round of podcast and looking back at the first quarter because you know every every year is a new year and we wonder what the year is going to look like and so far so good you know Lynn Drexler is a really interesting one because this was the first really major painting to come onto the market in a Christie's you know top tier kind of auction auction house rather than a regional sale in Maine or somewhere else in New England and following the trend line of the greater circle of Abex, you know, we've seen such movement in Frankenthaler and Mitchell. It seems like, as we've seen in other markets, Italian for one or zero movement, that Lynn Drexler becomes a name with a strong aesthetic palette that comes into the fold as these other markets become rarefied and unattainable. That here's another painter where if you can find a large scale work, you're going to, with the right dates on it, you're going to see a massive return because of the strong, intense interest in female painters, late abacts, and just generally American discoveries. The, the two works at Christie's came from this museum in Farnsworth. And there had been previously a small work that had sold quite well, which is in part, I don't know that it drove the Farnsworth sale, but at least you know it, it alerted Christie's to the market. That suggests this is supply-driven. 
It does. It, it seems that way. And it seems that, you know, as we have American collections in particular starting to mature, that some of these names that were of interest to people become of heightened interest as really fantastic examples um, come onto the market. You know, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out into May and into the fall and if it becomes an international market. Um, you know, I've heard that there are other large scale works that will come to market, but I've also learned that, you know, the larger scale works are pretty rarefied and which ones can move and which ones are in institutions. So this is, this is definitely a space to watch. And, you know, of all the you know, new American discoveries, the aesthetic power of her paintings is, on both the small and large scale really adds to benefit, you know, something that could be built into a really great long-term American sustainable market. So it's really a, a discovery moment, and a lot of people will be alerted to, to this, and there'll be that kind of distribution. It, exactly. And I think you saw the carry-on effect of this sale at Christie's, where for the keen observers of markets, up in Maine, there was a 1970s picture, which sold for $150,000 off a 20 to 30 estimate, in which would have otherwise been a sleepy regional auction sale. So this, that, that hunting and, and searching and turning over rocks moment is, is really capturing the mind of the market. Well, switching from uh, a relatively obscure American historical uh, abstract painters, uh, there was also a, a fair bit of market action for Caroline Walker, um, who's a Scottish painter and a figurative painter uh, uh, as well. Uh, particularly, I mean, there were a number of works that sold in, in March especially, but there was a, a really strong sale uh, at Phillips uh, in, in March uh, something that w went for uh, nearly half a million dollars that was estimated more like at about... Um, 50 know, to 70. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and I think there, again, it, it talks to this, the rarity or the availability of an in-demand artist like Caroline Walker for one of this scale to come to market and to be available to a wider public. You know, buying these things on the primary is, is exceedingly difficult. Um, you know, even even you know b or b minus examples you know you've got to fight pretty hard to get them proposed to you and you know with strings attached and other kinds of commitments to the to the artist the gallery institutions etc um so this is the first really major scale work to come to market and in a moment where people are looking at like what's next for the U uk painting what's happening next in figurative painting caroline walker has been that name that i can remember discussing with you know, pretty, you know, you want to use the word avant-garde or, you know, forward-thinking collectors, this has been a name that, you know, we've been throwing around for two years or so. And, you know, this painting, you know, I've talked to various people and some hold it in very higher esteem, some people a little less so, you know, achieved like a real price that, you know, I don't think a lot of people saw coming, but you did see the knock-on effect of that with the sale um, that Phillips did on behalf of the Whitechapel Gallery just a number of weeks later, where they sold um, a small work on paper close to $70,000. That's, you know, that shows the knock-on demand. Fine, charity auctions have a certain driver effect to them of benevolence, less so in the UK, where there's not so much like, tax implications potentially available to you, but you know, there's, you still have to count that into a bit of the pricing structure. But but there was also an earlier signal in October. There was a you know six uh, uh, 
just a six-figure sa sale that seems to have sort of set up this uh, oh, sale. So, so we are seeing the kind of classic market dynamics, not unlike what we saw with the Drexler. Mm -hmm. A positive sale brings out other things. That positive sale brings out more. So mm -hmm. there's the potential for more totally. walkers. More walkers, and I think even you know find a stronger example to come to market. This was you know the seller of this painting, the, a scattering. This is kind of like a perfect first mover action where you know the scene might the scale was good the scene might be a bit mundane for some people Carolyn Walker's work does move between kind of beautiful resort scenes and more mundane things like bakers and house painters um but it's it's that moment of like well here it is here it is on a grand scale and if you think you know here's the next great UK you know Scottish painter after Peter Doig coming out of out of the UK well you know that's pretty interesting. Not to discredit Urban Anderson, but we've already seen his market start to get established. More than established. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's hard to get a hold of Urban Anderson. Uh, completely. Uh, and speaking of Doig, uh, you've set that up nicely. You know, the very high end of the Doig market is extremely high, and there's sort of these repeat sales that go mostly go to the guarantors. I mean, it's nosebleed territory. We're talking $30 million pa paintings. But curiously, there were two sales in this quarter of um, much lower priced works, but ones that sold, you know, really strong. And I'm, I'm sort of curious, you know, what's your, your take on that? There, there always seems to be a very good market for these smaller scale, domestic scale doigs. Um, and part of that is the rarefied air of the big late 90s paintings where, you know, there's only so many of them. Most of them are pretty well parked except for the ones that we see kind of return to, to market now and again. And again, those kind of shift between people and, and hold and command the prices that they get, which is north of $20 million to $30 million. You know, so when you find... Uh, you know, a fresh or relatively fresh, smaller scale canvas, sort of you know, 50 inches or, or less, they can pull big prices. I can remember, you know, back when I ran day sales, we put one on the cover, and I think the estimate was like two to three hundred pounds, and it got close to a million dollars of the premium. And, you know, and that was kind of an eye-opening moment that you could get these small, very you know, very domestic scale doigs, and they can really start to command seven figures. So it's not surprising that a slightly bigger one. Like this with the nice red palette, snow scene, etc. Um, this is some houses on Iron Hill, just for reference to everybody. Can pull, can pull, you know, a good seven-figure result. And while we're doing uh, housekeeping, when you say two to three hundred pounds, you mean two to hundred thousand to three hundred thousand. Correct. Sorry for anyone listening who's not used to shorthand nomenclature of auction people and post-auction people. So, so it's really just, it's nice to see with these markets, things filling in, but it, it, are those just attractive estimates or are those as real estimates that were surpassed because there's a recalibration of these kinds of works? I think it's, it's more the recalibration in where something feels rare or highly desirable um, relative to scale that you get that. And then you start to look around, right? And say, like, okay, Doig is Doig. You know, his his market is very established. It's very hard to get in. If you go to any major Doig exhibition and look at the list of donors, it's you know a very small group of people. Um, so when you can jump in, and the pricing on you know such an established living artist starts to look like someone who just came out of an MFA program, 
well, you kind of start to ask yourself where the value should really sit. So I think that, I think part of that goes into this as well. All right, you, you clearly know where we're going because you're talking about people who just came out of MFA programs who are commanding very large prices, which not only sets us up to talk about uh, Flora Yuknovich, but also um, uh, Jade Farujutini, excuse my uh, butchering her name, um, but also uh, Shara Hughes, who's uh, been around much longer. All three of them, I mean, we can't have a conversation about uh, sort of what's hot in the market um, without talking about those three artists, they, they are driving a lot of sales and a lot of big sales. Uh, I don't know if you want to talk about that as a group or go through them individually. Well, it's interesting with Flora and Jade, both sort of coming out of the UK market. You know, I think it was the show in Camden that kind of Flora caught, everyone caught their attention with Flora. And Jade, I remember when I was still in London and Pippi was showing Jade, this is this shot in the arm of like, it just felt very fresh. It was like all of a sudden he felt like he had seen something great and new being made in London, which it felt like that hadn't happened in a while. And it had this kind of universal, immediate appeal. You know, you could feel it. Also, he's in Capitan, it had it in Basel like six months later. And, you know, it was just, it was there and it was, and everybody wanted a piece of it. And I think that's the same with Flora. You know, these works have, are rooted in an art historical practice. I think Flora's are more literal to the art historical, where Jade you pull from the great abstractionists of, you know, continental Europe in the 80s and 90s and, you know, prior to that. But both of them, you know, kind of tread that line of smart, thoughtful painting that has an academic and a market appeal to it, um, but it's also very easy to look at. The scales are, you know, not monumental. Most people, you know, be it Americans or Europeans or, you know, Asian collectors can, can live with these things in their homes, and they're very easy. You know, it's, it's not going to be one of those cases where, like, this is really strong art, historically progressive stuff. Oh, but, you know, my, my partner doesn't like it. Right. You know, it's, it's, it kind of has that, it has that appeal where everyone's going to be, like, cool with it and like it, but at the same time, it does capture the mind of institutions. You're, they're both pretty artists, right? Mm -hmm. The work is pretty, right. and and it's hard to find. Uh, you might it might not be to your taste, but it's not going to be objectionable to Correct. Some, uh, someone. Uh, in in Yuknovich's case, is the the her prices are so much higher, but she's also one working with a gallerist who's known for controlling markets, and one gets the sense that she doesn't create that much. Uh, work is is that the dynamic there, or is there something else that would put her in the you know two three million pound scale? Where uh... it feels like one of those availability moments where it's again, I mean, I remember in Miami last winter you know, they had a booth of of just works on paper, and they were clearly all gone before the, you know, the opening doors. But it was just that was just an exposure moment, and then that kind of builds the the, the fever pitch for it, and, you know, and you get. You know, these things into auction, and sure, you have 10, 15 phones on, or whatever on it in estimate, or, you know, the estimate feels, we sort of all know, feels a little artificially low. But really, what do you need? You need three, two at the end drivers to put that price, you know, up into kind of noteworthy territory. And I think, you know, again, it's just one of those 
market dynamics that's pushing it there. Yeah, and the values aren't secret at this point. In fact, the, the estimates are to get more people in, but also to give them downside room, right? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't look bad yeah. that they they couldn't reach these outside numbers when, at, as with all markets, this does sort of right. start to cycle down. But something else seems to be happening with Shara Hughes, though. though. I mean, she's a similar artist in the sense that she's an abstract, well, mm -hmm. an abstract-ish painter, colorful. I mean, she has similarities uh, to to the other two, but but there's like a, a different kind of cycle going on. I, I think, you know, Shara Hughes has been a name that's been around for a while. Just sort of, you'd find smaller paintings in day sales, you know, and they would make decent prices and kind of it always ticked along and it always felt like there was a general availability of them, and then all of a sudden it became very in vogue to try to find one, to buy one, to get one. Um, and I think that's what's commanding these prices at the top end. You know, her painting styles can vary quite widely, and I think in the present moment where we've been so heavy in figurative painting, we're starting to see, and it's interesting having talked about Jade and Flora just previous to this, you know, and I'm thinking about exhibitions that are on in New York right now, like the one at Alex McGruin, where you're seeing landscape, particularly, um, but not Alex, but um, this abstraction pulling into the figurative and the kind of, we're in a blend, I feel like we're in a blend moment where things are still figurative, but they're getting more and more abstract. And I don't know if that's going to lead to like a hard pendulum swing back to abstraction. And like that's going to be what is the darling of the market, and that's what we're going to start seeing. You know, big exhibitions. You know, you know, we were talking about Joan Mitchell now being on the East Coast, right? So, like, is is that going to be a driver that pushes us all back towards abstraction? Well, what doesn't uh, we should invoke Cecily Brown in all of this because she's a a, a figurative painter whose work appears a a abstract, who's become much more of an abstract uh, painter, and she seems to be almost like the patron saint of right. And and what is it of you know, Cecily's market? The the really figurative ones kind of fall not flat, but don't command the same kind of pricing as the abstract ones. And, Part of that's the graphic nature of it. And someone say, I don't know if I want that on my wall. I like, you know, <laughs> I've like, got kids. <laughs> I've got kids. I'm, I'm, you know, super Protestant. That's not going to work for me. Um, you know, I, who knows? But I think going back to Shara, you know, and the results that we've seen, it's really when you look across the board and what feels like it could have a strong statement in today's world of, you know, not total realist painting, not total figurative, not naive, somewhere kind of pulling all these various influences together, you know, nods to Hockney in the background. And, you know, there's there's a lot there that speaks to culture in different ways and different people come to it for different reasons that I think gives it high appeal uh, in today's art world. I guess my next question is, it looked for a while like this was one of those things like had been going on for a while and had reached its peak. And then in March, we had $2 million plus sales of Shara Hughes' work, which almost suggests like it's jumping into another tech. Totally. And I think, I think that also, again, speaks to availability of in the rarefication of other female painters who are starting to climb ever upwards. Um, you know, that... You know, we talked about Cecily Brown for one, right? And then we previously we talked about Frankenthaler. And, you know, I think as those more established markets really become solidified in the $2 million plus range, people whose top end is $2 million and below start to say, well, I like this, but what else can I find that's like it that feels like it has room and growth potential in it? And, you know, enter Charlie Hughes. 
And it's worth mentioning while we're in all of this that Dana Schutze also had a very strong, at a much lower level, it's a $200,000 sale, but for a work that was estimated at you know something like $50,000. And, and that was a really special painting. I mean, I went down to Christie's to see it specifically. Um, this is part of a series of what's called the self-eaters, um, and they are self-portraits, again, following this Schutze's early work, where it was a lot about herself or you know, the world, like the last man on earth and things like that. And so I thought this painting was really interesting because it's the, as I know it, it's the only one that's the death of the self-eater, and it's a nocturne where the rest of them are all brightly colored sort of traditional palette works by, by Schutz. Um, and the estimate, you know, was sort of a standard estimate for a Schutz painting of this size. And, you know, and probably reflects the dark palette as well. Correct. And, but, you know, really strong picture, and if you get Schutz, then you understand why this should really get the price of it. And some people, uh, enough to get it to 200000 also got that. One of the artists who has had um, a lot of activity is Alison Zuckerman. Right. Uh, I was actually surprised when I sort of went through the records of the recent sales. Uh, and, and it's, I guess the question is, is she just sort of... Um, Part of the same story? Is it it's something di different and specific to her style? Out of everything we've talked about so far, I mean, she clearly comes more like to the pop side of things, or like the appropriation, like pop appropriation, really, and this kind of immediately immediate understanding referential images, the cubism, the other art historical nods in her paintings as reference imagery. You know, what, I think what's interesting is we see strong results against estimate on the whole, but, you know, the market seems to have said these are one fifty dollars to $200,000 paintings at the same time. But the market's absorbing a lot of them. Oh, I mean, totally. I mean, it looks like there were, you know, a, a dozen uh, or more paintings sold in this quarter. That's a, that's a lot of work for an artist not, who's not necessarily a household name. No, and then that speaks to a question of like, okay, these are sold out on the primary, but have they sold well? Like, what are, what are the drivers here that are putting these things first out and then second out. So that's that's an interesting question. And I think a question that uh, more and more people are starting to ask themselves. Oh, about her market in about, general? About the markets in general, I think. So uh, that, uh, speaking of questions about mar markets, uh, Joel Messler is an art dealer who has a sideline as a uh, painter and has become quite popular, it seems, especially with uh, uh, Asian buyers. Mm -hmm. uh, and he performed quite well in uh, Christie's Shanghai uh, sale and I think there was mention uh, at the beginning of the sale that the Long Museum is going to do mm -hmm. uh, a show. Uh, it, it, is that I mean the numbers are getting up there. Is is that primarily driven by Asian interest? It, it seems to be. I mean the big sales results, you know, the top results do seem to come out of Asia so far, and you know the Long Museum is certainly a nice place to get a museum show. And you know all credit due to Joel for having created an aesthetic and a body of work that has a global appeal to it. I think that's, you know, really impressive however you get to it. Um, the work that was sold at Christie's, I guess it was Shanghai, that, that was a really phenomenal example. It had all the kind of right elements and good words in it. Yeah, so it, it should, if, if something was going to take it from where it had been sitting in that two fifty three hundred thousand dollars $300,000 range and really like exponentially move it up a bit, that's the right kind of picture to do that. All right, shifting gears somewhat uh, dramatically, another big part of this story is um, a whole group of artists who have, I don't know, how do we describe this? I mean, almost sort of like pop 
uh, or toy imagery uh, uh, through them, uh, and and they are you know plowing along in the market. Uh, Javier Calleja have very strong numbers um, in this quarter, uh, several million dollar sales, two or three of them, uh, I believe. Edgar Plans did very well in that same Shanghai sale at, at, at Christie's. Uh, and it, it, it seems like, you know, I don't know whether these are uh, plans is a kind of been around longer, but it's this this sort of uh, Nara meets cause uh, effect on the uh, market. Yeah, and it has a kind of, you know, it's the 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 draftsmanship of it is is strong, and it has this childlike element to it. I'm not going to say it's reconciling something like Cobra tried to do post war. You know, I don't think it's coming out of kind of a trauma in that regard, but it is going back to this kind of childhood freedom. It's got this playfulness to it. Um, it and again, it. it it does seem to be driven by a group of collectors who, you know, kind of probably started out looking at Nara, collecting vinyl figures, being in that kind of a world, and finding an artist that they could grab onto, support, liked it immediately, just you know, purely aesthetically driven, and climb up with it. There is a community around these artists that I think, you know, if you haven't watched it, you know, about the early the early cause collectors who are no longer the base of the cause collecting market, but were the were the community around it. It's the same. It's the same kind of community. It's this aesthetic speaks to this group um, in a way that I don't think necessarily. You know, the more quote unquote traditional collecting base gets gets immediately. Kaeha, uh, I know, does uh, uh, figures and uh, and toys, if we want to call them that. But does plans as yeah, well? Yeah, he does as well. Yep. Yeah. And I think DDT just did one. I think I know that the Lego TO guys have done some things with both artists. Um, so there is that crossover. And again, this kind of collecting idea where the sculpture figure can have equal place on the wall shelf with a painting, even if the values of the two are completely different. Well, I was just, just going to ask you, do you have to track those markets kind of against each other? Not that they're the same market, but that like, you know, either counter or that one would imply change in values in the other? I don't, I, I think they run separate to one another. I think, you know, they're not mutually exclusive, but someone who can be in the figures market might not be in the paintings market, but someone in the paintings market probably be in the figures market as well. So, there's there's overlap and interplay, and you remember that a lot of people who were early buyers of this who have sold and made nice returns on their work, double down and go back into you know maybe it's selling the plants to get the Calleja or it's you know getting in you know going from Edgar plans to Robert Nava if they can or Jordy Kerwick or you know so, something deeper down the naivety scale. Well, before we get to the those, um, it, it's worth mentioning here for. People who don't, you know, uh, the, I think I don't think there's much of a bias against the um, uh, figures a, a anymore. But you know, there is a very clear comparable with Picasso's ceramics. That there were Picasso collectors who also bought ceramics and went up and down into those markets as the values changed. And and they have interesting effects from the plates, the ceramics, all of those things. Uh, you know, it's the same dynamic. Totally, it's it's a, it almost a, it's an engrossing lifestyle kind of thing where you can be involved and engaged in different levels and, and all of it has meaning at the end of the day. Right, and the, and they, they, they reference each other. Yeah. Uh, and, interest. and by when we're saying figurines and things like this, we're not talking like gift shop objects. This is actual like limited edition collectible objects that, you know, people stand in line or like wake up at odd hours of the day to get on the releases for. So 
Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think this is a new thing, and, but I do think there are still people in this who, who question it or are somewhat uh, uh, put off. So having that historical uh, example is worth it. Nava was the one who had a breakout, you know, was the kind of first of the naive guys to come on the scene in the last couple of years that was on the tip of everyone's tongue and people wanted to get. And the one that Sotheby's sold in London, you know, for followers of Nava, I think we could probably all agree that that was the best example. You know, the double dog heads, very rough and ready. And, you know, the Nava kind of fit very nicely when it came into play into, do you like the naive spray paint on canvas styles of Basquiat? Or, you know, were you an early believer in Sterling Ruby? Like, here comes that rough and ready style again, but now it's cartoonish and, you know, it has a playfulness of it, like the artist we were talking about before. But it, it is it is very raw. I mean, anecdotally, really funny. Pace had a show in East Hampton last summer, and I was, you know, left my own devices to entertain my children for a few hours, and I was like, "Oh, we'll go see the Nava show," and thinking they were like, "They're going to love double-headed sharks with rockets on them." Hated it. Absolutely hated scared it. Him. No, not even scared them. Just were like, "We don't like this." Like, and then they, we went to the Robert Longo show down the road, and they're like, "We we like this." I'm like, "Oh, okay." So it shows that the childlike stuff is appealing to adults trying to recapture right, their right, sense right. of childhood. Not that we're all being helicopter parents or like living vicariously through our children's lives, you know, but that was that was a really funny moment for me in the whole thing. And, and then the real question is the Kerwick market is is sort of now that uh, Anava is 650000 does that sort of pull up a space for people to buy Jordy Kerwick or is it just something in, independent? He seems to have like all be everywhere all at once he, all of a sudden he is you know if damien hurst said i want to be with everyone always all the time like the kerwick seems to be there you know i don't think we're going to see multiple galleries across the globe covered in kerwick paintings anytime soon but you know at the same time it does seem to be something that is being talked about collected and looked at in america in europe in asia and at first i would have said you know again strong asian market but actually you know americans are we said this in the last podcast, it's not surprising to hear someone buying a Kerwick and sticking it next to a blue chip, Fontana, Ruche, you know, Warhol, whatever it is. Like the two, the, the way that collecting is going now is the new and the old are right next to each other in both, you know, like a Negra Plans figurine or a painting, getting equal pride of place in the collections. Um, so it's, you know, I, I haven't seen or felt Kerwick's market move as dynamically as Nava. I think there's justification pre even pre I think the auctions this season justified the It was a coming out party. You hadn't seen yeah. a lot of auction, but what you're saying is that's really just sort of matching mm -hmm. what's going on in the um uh private mar market. So it doesn't necessarily mean we're gonna see another flood of Kerwicks if there's not the demand to go above these numbers because right. it's gonna be hard to like, we're, we'll either be you know, I think there's every indication that another really strong painting like the one that Sotheby's had in New York in their mid-season sale, you know, if something like that comes out again, I, I think we will see exponential growth against it. You know, the the tap seems to have been tightened up, you know, upon like the release of all these works at auction. Um, but, you know, it, it's what I think is more interesting is that Kerwick, the paintings are fuller, they're more completed than say like a Nava. And that's just different artists, different styles. But, the name, if you if you get like a wish list from somebody, um, Kerwick seems to be higher up than Nava, or Nava's not there as much as it used to be. 
whereas the two were generally tied to each other, which is kind of like why we're talking about them together. Back to back. Yeah. yeah. So <clears throat> it's just interesting, and, and I think for me personally, part of that is the complete the completeness of them. The counterexample to Kerwick and Nava is Rafa Macaron, who the numbers at auction appear to outperform estimates, but they are below what's happening in the private market. Correct, or what was what was being achieved or trying to be what the asks were in the private market, and I think that was a real ripple effect where you know it's like okay, these macarons are also out in the market now and there, but they didn't perform against estimate the way one would expect based on what people were asking in the secondary market privately for them. Maybe that's just also an example of the examples that were available during the season. Uh, and while we're on all of this subject, it's probably worth talking about Andre Butzer, who is um, sort of a godfather of all, all of this style of work. Yeah, or he's he's kind of, you know, he's a he's a bridge in all of it. I don't think you can get to a lot of these things without Butzer. Um, Butzer has been around for a very long time and has had a, well, I think well very well-managed primary market. Um is in a lot of very good collections and a lot of collections that have the artists that we've talked about earlier in this in this podcast um, also have major butzer somewhere in the house. Um, you can see it on any number of Instagram accounts. Um, you know, and I think butzer's pricing is starting to climb up on the secondary. Um, <clears throat> the paintings are bigger, but again, I think he's benefited on two sides. You've got what happened a few years ago with the Olin market where Olin finally, to his credit, his market really pushed above and is not going back below a million dollars. In my opinion, should still be a $10 million artist. And then you have people like, okay, so what comes after Olin? And it's like, here's Andre Butzer. And, you know, again, those paintings for a long time were twenty five to 35000 picture currency. And they would sell an estimate, maybe if it was a really good example, they go a bit above, but like very little action, kind of middle of the sale, middle to back of the sale kind of thing. And now they're, you know, coming in, good examples are coming into evening sales, and they're achieving relatively good prices. You know, I don't think you're seeing the explosive sales that you're seeing in other places, but it's steady, it's confident. You know, it, I think it shows that there is a wider audience that believes long-term in the artist. I guess this is a, a bit of a hard shift, but... Um... Uh, and I, I, I'm always going to mispronounce her name. It's not Genevieve. It's Genevieve Figus. Uh, also had some strong sales this quarter, and this has been going on for some time with her. Yeah, and I think that's what's really interesting. Is you know, I remember when her work first came on the scene. It was like, okay, we're in this kind of naive, loose, figurative painting world with these you know, funny faces and these sort of like James Ensor. James Ensor meets Karen Kalimnik, and like. The fun, like, oddest of ways, but like, yeah, it has massive curve appeal, even to somebody who's like a staunch collector of conceptual art. Um, I was like, all right, well, okay, we can get behind this. And yeah, it's just one that, you know, pre pandemic, it was already there. Through the pandemic, they were still trading and trading well. And I think we've seen in this season a continuation of that. And maybe it's not as explosive overall, but I mean, we did see a very good result at Christie's Shanghai. You know, that's a, that's a strong sale, and and the other paintings kind of fell into line in that kind of one to two hundred thousand dollar range. That you know to be able to command that over ten pictures in a season, that's pretty good. Like you can't really take take any flack with that. Uh, it, and there's still uh, interest in the private market. Oh, for, totally. For, yeah. 
there's this Japanese artist, and these sales are almost entirely in Japan, except for um, one that I think took place at Sotheby's. But there's a, a you know, a, a Grisai artist, uh, L.Y. is uh, the name, uh, and the work seemed to be doing, you know, quite well. They're not huge value, but there's a lot of activity in, in this market. A ton of activity, a lot of people looking at it. You know, we had one in the live art market that got a lot of interest, both from America and Asia. Um, less so, and as you noted, like the big sales that come from Japan, you know, Japanese artists, very much in that aesthetic. You know, it'll be interesting to see how this develops over the next few seasons. I think there's every indication that it should continue to go higher. Um, wonder if it'll have a pullback, knock-on effect for people like Jeff McFelter, which has been a, kind of in this aesthetic for a very long time, but kind of can't break free of that graphic design world of like beautiful losers group. Well, it is. I mean, it's it's always very hard to see where things are going to go, and then we get these very surprising uh, events. And uh, another version of these surprising events is the um, the strong Julian Schnabel sale uh, at Christie's, which actually, when I went back and looked at the numbers, there have been a number of strong Julian Schnabel sales over the last uh, a couple of years, and they're not just like play paintings from the '80s. Right, and that's to qualify not the last couple of decades either. You know, because you know, big, powerful '80s paintings, right? No, no, literally the last year or two, it's selective. There have also been sort of small sales and, and all, but but going through the numbers, it, there's surprising strength. I mean, there was this one um, Schnabel. Uh, at Christie's, that made six hundred and thirty thousand uh, dollars all in, uh, well above the estimate. But it had been preceded by another, you know, eight hundred thousand dollars sale uh, in December. So there, there's there's demand. Out there. It's interesting. It's a bit of a it's a bit of a ripsaw. Like you get paintings that make these command these big prices, north five hundred thousand dollars, and then you get other ones that sell for less. And you know, you kind of have people who are like, oh, I want a great paint, plate painting, you know, but it has to be this date or like this sitter, that sitter, etc. And then other people who like the big abstraction works, you know. And I think, you know, a lot of people got reintroduced, you know, maybe they weren't even born when Schnabel was really in the height of his 80s power um, through Albert Olin. You know, Albert Olin and Schnabel enjoy a long friendship and have been exhibited together and there's a lot of similarities in certainly Schnabel's abstract work, but if you think about Olin and Kippenberger and some of the more figurative stuff they were doing in the 80s and into the start of the 90s, you know, there's crossover there. Um, and for all, all intents and purposes, you know, Schnabel could feel undervalued against other things for someone who was such a major force within, within the 80s, um, art scene. But a major cultural figure too. Totally. I mean, he's not. Yeah. It's not movie like he, producer. And, yeah. I yeah. mean, uh, and and it's not like you know there are other painters who tried to make mo movies and that didn't go so yeah, but so they, well. They weren't diving bell in the butterfly. <laughs> so. But that that's the the point. I yeah. mean, the range of his movie making is um, impressive and totally. his skill uh, uh, there, and that doesn't necessarily negate the the painting. It's just interesting. You know, uh, others have connected it to somewhat. Uh, you know, David Sally's market has been uh, moving a fair bit the last year or two. Um, you know, seen Francesco Clemente kind of come back onto people's radar. I mean, I was in London. There was a um, Emilio Dovi show, Padova yeah. show. You know, and those actually looked very fresh, and they had been painted in the '90s. You now, again, you look at the Danish artist Per Kirkeby, all of a sudden, this feels very fresh and lively. It's something that kind of feels forgotten, but you know, maybe that's why going back to the you know, the top of this conversation when we started with Drexler, it's again like discovery moments or. Where does something feel like it's undervalued or should be 
higher, and if it's a particularly excellent example, then it commands those kinds of results. Uh, and then sort of finally, it's almost worth talking about what we're not talking about. I mean, there's the example of Emmanuel Taku who had some strong sales, but for the most, and there have been strong sales for African diaspora painters, sometimes at lower levels, some continuing trends from last year, but it's, there are no sort of standout uh, sales. I don't think it's sort of, we've moved on from that, but it certainly doesn't feel like that's the uh, sort of driving force of the market. No, I, I think we've gone back to a multi-pillared market where people are just looking for the best examples, be it from you know, the Western African art scene that's been very explosive and new over the past few seasons um, to, you know, figurative painting coming out of Scotland, or if it's new abstractionists, you know, etc. So, but Emmanuel Taku is a very interesting one because the paintings have a signature style to them. They have a look. They follow into the tradition of what a lot of other painters are doing with the monochrome backgrounds, but the figures have their own uniqueness to them. And I also think you look at them and they've you know, they've, they've grown in prominence and in value pretty well. You know, these, to be commanding prices north of $200,000 is no small fee. You know, that shows real true interest out there and people following along and, you know, believing in this. And, you know, there's only been a handful of results. But again, it's, these aren't easy to go out and get. You just can't call up Bernie Mercier and acquire one. It's, it's a little bit harder than that. Um, so... You know, I think what we've seen with, with Taku should continue on, you know, where it goes or, you know, who's the name that comes along after Taku, you know, TBD. But I think we are, again, in that kind of, there are people who are still hyper-focused on this side of the market. There are other people who have budding interest in it. Um, and there are other people who are now kind of, they've done that and now they're looking at other things. And again, it's this kind of churn that always happens season in, season out. Um, but, you know, I, I don't, I don't anticipate that Taku is going to fall off the map anytime Well, I think that that does it for for this roundup. We're, we're going to have a parallel piece where we go into some of the details and the numbers and give people links to the data from the LiveR database. So we'll we'll direct you to that on social media and in the uh, postings. Other than that, uh, we're looking forward to Q2, which is traditionally the biggest quarter of the year for the art market. Uh, and I guess, you know, with the combination of Hong Kong, the New York sales, uh, we'll see a lot more about uh, direction and what uh, uh, emerges. Yeah, right? I think it'll be emerging. It's, it's shaping up to be a pretty blue chip season in New York, at least. You know, you've got Maclow Part 2, um, which has some fantastic things in it, as we've seen on the global tour so far. Be remiss not to mention the Maryland over at Christie's, and of course they announced the uh, the Basque sale today, um, which has some pretty nice looking Rothkos, the Ga, you know, Mo, you know, another Monet to match again the Sotheby's announced their Monet last week. So again, we're seeing this kind of confluence of the 20th and 21st centuries, and you know, again the cross category collecting where we're seeing. Strong results in at every point of the market. It's the Goldilocks market. I mean, uh, who knows how long it'll last. But, but we keep saying that to ourselves, season in, season out. You know, Q1 that for me is always that nervous one. Where I'm like, what's going to happen now? And then you know, we we come through it and it's pretty good. All right, fingers crossed. Yep. Thank you, George. Thank you, Mary. Always a pleasure. Thank you for joining us at the Artelligence Podcast. 
edited by Colin Ketchin, who also composed the original music. For more episodes, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to download the LiveArt app or visit us at liveart.io. Please join us for the next episode of the Artelligence Podcast. We're looking forward to it.